0: Turn to Matthew 12. We want to continue our studies in this gospel. It comes as no secret to you that Jesus was a controversialist. He uh, very often was right in the center of controversy. He was always in hot water, it seems. He uh, found himself in trouble with the establishment, the religious establishment of his day, he violated their cultures and conventions, and it was not because he was counterculture or anti-establishment. The, the Lord wasn't against much of anything. It's because he was for truth, and because he walked according to the truth, he very frequently ran afoul of their of their culture and their taboos and the conventions of his day. He uh, For example, touched lepers on the street. That you just didn't do. He talked to single women on the streets. That was unheard of. It was taboo in the Jewish circles of his day. He did those things not because he was a troublemaker, but because he walked according to the truth. James says, The wisdom that's from above is first pure, and then, peaceable. Now, that's a, an order that's important. A wise man or woman does not operate on the basis of peace at all costs. If we're wise, we'll operate on the basis of purity at all costs. And there are times if we walk in purity that we will violate convention and we will not be peaceable. Now, that's what we find the Lord so frequently doing. We see two examples of it in chapter 12. The first is in the first eight verses. At that time Jesus went on the Sabbath through the grain fields, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Behold, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now the disciples were doing what was common practice in those days, perhaps you've uh, followed this practice yourself. You're walking through a grain field and you gather some grain in your hands, rub uh the grain together in, in your palms to break up the hus and then blow the chaff away and eat it. It's uh, just barely palatable, it's low in calories, it's also low in taste, but it beats being hungry. And uh, that's the sort of thing that we often do today, and that was common practice in Jesus' day. These men were not doing anything that was unlawful. They weren't stealing from this farmer. It's not like snitching watermelons. They were following common practice. As a matter of fact, the law, the Mosaic law, actually provided for this practice. As long as they didn't put a sickle into the standing grain, they could gather or harvest with their hands as much as they needed. This was a provision for hungry travelers as they made their way through the grain fields. So these disciples were not violating Moses' law. They were violating... The laws that the rabbis had added to the Sabbath law. The rabbis had ringed about the Sabbath law with all sorts of, of additions and explanations. So much so that they had ruined the intent of the Sabbath. The rabbis would say, it's alright to gather wheat this way six days out of the week, but on the Sabbath, it's work. And you're violating the Sabbath if you work. Because you see, if you gather grain, you're reaping. If you rub the grain out between your palms, you're threshing. If you blow the chaff away, that's winnowing. And that's work. And you can't work on the Sabbath. And that's why they said to Jesus and his disciples, you're doing what is unlawful. Not because they broke the law of Moses, but because they broke the man-made laws of, of their day. Now, if you think that's absurd... Uh, you should uh, read of some of the other additions to the law. They had 39 different labors that you could not do on the Sabbath. For example, it was all right to spit on the pavement, but you could not spit on the ground because that was making mortar. You could carry a burden on the Sabbath, but it could be no heavier than two dried figs. You could take a journey, but you could only walk 3,000 feet If your house caught on fire on the Sabbath, you couldn't carry water to put it out because that was carrying a burden heavier than two dried figs. You could carry your child out, but uh, you couldn't carry out any other article of furniture or attempt to put out the fire. You simply stood there and watched it burn. These were the additions that they had made to the Sabbath law. Now of course, what they had done was entirely miss the intent of the Sabbath provision. The Sabbath law is rooted in creation. If you go back to the story of Gen- as it's told in Genesis, there's a description there of a of a creation that's made for man. Everything God did was for man. The whole universe was for man. He was the apex of all of creation, and the Sabbath law was simply one of those creations. Man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. God knows that man needs to rest. We can't go full throttle seven days a week. All work and no play not only makes Jack a very dull boy, it can make him very dead. Our bodies are not made to work seven days a week. God knows that. And so out of his love, he made provision for a day of rest. rest. It was a day when you could knock off. You take things easy. They didn't have 40 hour days, 40 hour uh, weeks in those days. They worked hard. Their labor was strenuous. And so God said, one day out of the week we'll set aside so you can rest your body. And your worship during that time will remind you that it all depends upon God. And so when you go back to work on the first day of the week, you can go full throttle. You can be rested in body and rested in mind. And there was nothing in the Old Testament that prohibited fun on the Sabbath or fishing or any of those things. It was simply hard labor that was proscribed. But see, the Jews had added to the law and they made it a burdensome thing. The original intent of the law was to show the heart of God. That's what all the law does. People are God's most important product. He loves them and the law demonstrates that. That's why the man who properly understood the law could say, Oh, how I love thy laws, we heard earlier today. Because it was for man's sake. As we saw last week, Jesus said, My yoke is easy, my burden is light. It wasn't intended to burden man, it was to make life easier for them. But they had ringed the Sabbath law about with all sorts of regulations, and unfortunately that practice still continues today. I have a friend who just last week told me that when he was a kid growing up, he hated Sunday. He absolutely hated it. It was a drag. Because he couldn't do any of the things that a kid loves to do when he has some free time. He couldn't fish. He couldn't go out exploring or hiking. He couldn't listen to the radio. He couldn't read secular material. He either had to be in church or sitting quietly at home. And he dreaded Sunday. It was a big bore. He hated it. He was bored with what he thought was a provision that God made. And you see, people who who take that point of view on, on what they would call the Sabbath are guilty of the same error that pervaded the Judaism of Jesus' day. There are really three errors if we think that way today in the church. The first is that we don't recognize that Sunday is not the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the last day of the week, the seventh day of the week. Saturday, or to be more precise in in Jewish culture, from Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. That's the Sabbath. So at least the Seventh-day Adventists are, are correct in that they have the right day. If we're going to be Sabbath keepers, it has to be on Saturday, not Sunday. And secondly, the New Testament says absolutely nothing about Sabbath-keeping. Not one word. All the rest of the law, the Ten Commandments, are restated in the New Testament in some form or the other. But the New Testament says absolutely nothing about Sabbath-keeping. It's never commanded upon us. Do you know why? Because the one day of Sabbath rest was intended in the Old Testament to be a symbol of the long-term rest that we have, the continuing rest, the ongoing rest that we experience because of what God has done for us. You don't need to rest one day in the week. You can rest seven. We rest in a finished work. We rest in God's adequacy. That's the point of the Sabbath. It was all symbolic. And the apostles knew this. The early church knew this. That's why they changed their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. It's appropriate because that's the day when the Lord rose from the dead. And that's uh, an appropriate day to worship the Lord. But it's not because they believed that Sunday was the Sabbath. They knew better. The apostles had taught them. You read Hebrews 4 this afternoon and you'll see clearly that the writer of Hebrews teaches that the Sabbath rest is fulfilled in the rest of God that you and I experience today because of what God has done for us. And back in Colossians, Paul warns the people in Colossae against making one day a special day and distinguishing between days. He says, uh, therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. You see, the point is that the Sabbath rest, the day of Sabbath rest, is a sign, a symbol of the substance, which is Christ. And today we enjoy that rest 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. The third error... That people fall into, who equate Sunday with the Sabbath, is that they simply don't understand the intent of the Sabbath law. It was not intended to be a burdensome thing, a hard thing. It was intended to free man from his labor, to release him from heavy labor, and to allow him to refresh himself. Exodus 23 says that's a day when, when a man and his beasts and his servants can refresh themselves, can recoup, can uh, recreate can gain back their strength to go back into the world and face the consequences of the fall there. And you see, it's this that the, that the rabbis of Jesus' day had missed. They did not understand the purpose of the law. And so, Jesus corrects them. Now, we need to keep in mind that Jesus is not correcting Moses' Sabbath law. Jesus never did that. Never. He never stood in judgment on the law. We know that from the Sermon on the Mount. He was subject to it. He believed it. He was obedient to it. So he's not correcting the Sabbath law. He's correcting their interpretation. And what he does is gather from three different sources arguments that would undermine their misunderstanding of the Sabbath. The first is found in verses 3 and 4. In the background of this uh, of this passage and Jesus' statement, it's first Samuel 21, and here's what happened. David and his band of uh, men were fleeing from Saul. Saul was the king at that time, and David was fleeing for his life, and he ran out of food. And so they went up to Nob, which was where the tabernacle was located, and he went to Ahimelech, who was the priest at Nob, and he asked for food. Ahimelech said, I don't have anything here but the bread of presents, or the showbread, as we know it from the uh, authorized version of King James. The bread of presence was 12 loaves that uh, was baked, uh, these loaves were baked each uh, week and placed on a little table in the holy place in the tabernacle in the presence of God. That's why it was called the bread of presence. It apparently symbolized God's provision of our daily bread. Each week, fresh loaves were baked, the old loaves were taken away and given to the priests. That was a priestly perquisite, that's what they got one of the side benefits of being a priest. They didn't have lands, they didn't have uh, herds, and so they had to be provided for in other ways. So um, uh, that was their perk. They got to eat the bread, the weak old bread, if you can imagine. But being an 11, I'm sure it was uh, all right. Palatable, edible. In the Old Testament, the statement is made that the bread is for the priest. In other words, it's a loving provision that God made for the priests. But nowhere in the Old Testament does it say the bread is not for anyone else. There's not one single prohibition in the Old Testament against the laity eating the bread. You see, that the Pharisees had committed a lapse in, in logic. They were saying that because the bread is for the priests, it is only for the priests. And it is prohibited to everyone else. And they had made that a law. Only the priests in Jesus' day could eat the bread. No one else could. Had David shown up at the temple in Jesus' day, the priests would have turned him away hungry. And they would have missed the intent of the law. Because the law provides for man's good. It's not intended to be a burden or to uh, hinder. You see, they missed the point. Now let me illustrate. This is corny, but uh, sometimes corny illustrations help. Suppose I say... Uh, that after the service this morning, children may slide on the slide in the back. You know, we always play equipment back here, and the children are permitted to slide. Now, my intention is simply to say that uh, whereas children normally go to the cars, they can play on the play equipment for a while after the service. That's my only intent. It's for the good of our children. It's a loving thing. But you're sitting out there and you interpret my statement to mean, Adults cannot slide. What a meaning. I've been waiting to slide all day. But you see, I didn't prohibit your sliding. Adults can slide anytime they want to. I was simply saying children are permitted to slide. See? Now, if I put a sign up there that said adults stay off, then I really would be a meanie. But that's not my intention at all. Now, that was what the law provided. It was a provision for man, not a prohibition, but they had read into it a prohibition. And again, that's still with us today. Our tendency is to read the Old Testament that way and miss the intent of the law and read the New Testament that way. And forget that God's intention is holy good. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And so we read into the Old Testament and the New Testament prohibitions that are simply not there. Now let me illustrate. I had a friend this past week who told me that he was visiting in another town and he went to a church and he was really hungry for fellowship. And uh, I don't know the church. I don't even know where it was. But he sat down at the back and he noticed up front that the Lord's table was spread and he was delighted because here was an opportunity to fellowship with some believers. But when they were about to serve the table, someone stood up and said, Only those who are members of this church can participate in the Lord's Supper. And this brother was excluded. Now underlying that statement, of course, is a biblical principle that we need to bring into sharper focus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should not eat and drink of this table in an unworthy fashion. We shouldn't come to it with unresolved and unjudged sin. We shouldn't take this meal as lightly as we take other meals. It's a special time. It's a time of examination. And if we don't examine ourselves, he says, then we'll be examined by God. If we don't spank ourselves, then God will discipline us. So we we better listen up. It's a, it's a provision of love. It's to protect us. But you see, this man, or this group of men, took that, provision of love and distorted it as and used it as a way of excluding a brother instead of the brother making the the judgment you see it the responsibility rests on each individual to judge himself they took that judgment upon themselves they became the judge of the individual and the criteria that they used criterion was membership in their church now i'm not i don't mean to be harsh i don't even know who these people are but they missed entirely the point of this law, you see? Now that's what we're in danger of doing if we don't see that behind all of Scripture is this great heart of God His intent to do us good and nothing but, but good. Now this is the first illustration which the Lord uses, that from David's life. The second is in verses 5 and 6. He says, have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests and the temple break the Sabbath, and you'd have to put that word in quotes, and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. Now, he's not saying that the priests in the temple actually broke the law. He's saying that by their interpretation of the Sabbath, they broke the law. Because they had to lift animals up on the altar. They had to slay animals. They had to carry utensils from one part of the temple to another, and by their labor, they were breaking these man-made rules that were attached to the Sabbath. You see? This is in logic which call, uh, what's called a reductio ad absurdum. You take a person's argument and you push it to its absurd consequences. It's extreme. And that's what he's doing. Crystal clear thinking here. Let's just, all right, let's take your rules, he says, and let's just follow them out to their logical consequence. Well, what what you're doing by these rules is causing the priest to sin. They're doing exactly what God told them to do and you're condemning the innocent. You see? Now, we don't do that, or do we? There may be some of you sitting out there now who you thought you were trying to do, you thought you were doing what God called you to do and following His will and someone imposed a rule upon you which for years has made you feel guilty, which is not a biblical proscription at all. See? Jesus says you've caused the innocent to feel guilty. The priests, the disciples, who are doing absolutely nothing wrong. Now this third argument is taken from the prophecy of Hosea. Verse 7, If you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice You would not have condemned the innocent. God doesn't put any premium on law-keeping for the sake of law-keeping, or ritual or rite just for the sake of keeping ritual. We have to understand the purpose behind it all. The reason the law was given is so we can show compassion. We would not know what's loving if God didn't tell us. And what God wants is not rigid adherence to rules, but a loving heart. That's the purpose of all the law. He says, if we understood that, we would not condemn the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's his conclusion. Now, he's not here saying that he, as Messiah, the Son of Man, has the right to change the rules. He's not saying that as Lord of the Sabbath, he has the right to make another rule. Let's just do away with with Moses' Old Testament rule. That's not what he's saying at all. The term son of man is a Semitic idiom for man. It's just another way of saying man. That's the way it's used in the Old Testament. In Psalm 8, David says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that you visit him? Man equals son of man. Ezekiel is referred to as Son of Man. So he's not saying here that the Lord as the Son of Man, as Messiah, he certainly was that, but he's not using that title in that sense here. He's not saying that he has the right to change the rules. He's saying that man himself is Lord of the Sabbath. We should not be tyrannized by the Sabbath law. Because man wasn't made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man. It was a provision out of God's love and grace and mercy. It was something that man needed. And to show how far they went in carrying out this uh these extra biblical rules, you have the circumstances in the in the synagogue, the incident in the synagogue described in verses nine through fourteen. And departing from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man with a withered hand. Luke tells us that it was his right hand that was withered. And they questioned him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him? He said to them, What man shall there be among you? He shall have one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and counseled together against him as to how they might destroy him. It's incredible how callous people can be when they believe that rules are all important. This was a setup. They planted this man. In a way, it's a sort of backhanded compliment to the Lord because they knew he would notice him and do something about it. The Lord comes into the synagogue and here's this this afflicted man with a withered hand and Jesus notices him and they knew that he would do something. And they waited for him to heal on the Sabbath so they could accuse him of breaking the Sabbath and discredit him before the people. So the Lord says, listen, if you have a donkey that falls into a pit, Are you going to let him stay there and starve? If you have a lamb, it falls into a pit. Will you let him drown? No. The law provides for for the deliverance of animals. How much more important is a man? And you see, that's what had happened. Rules took precedent over human need. They not only missed the intent of all of God's Word, but they added to God's Word man-made regulations that made life more grievous and more difficult for man. They had missed the entire, the entire point. And so he heals the man's hand, and the Pharisees realized he was too hot to handle, and they aligned themselves with their bitter enemies, the Herodians, and began to take counsel how they could kill him. They hated the Herodians. The Herodians were the pro-Roman group. The Pharisees were the nationalists of their day. And uh, yet they aligned themselves with their, with their enemies in order to do away with Jesus. So the Lord withdrew. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him and he healed them and warned them not to make him known. Mark tells us that uh, he went out of the urban centers out into the countryside and people from Syria way up north, Gentiles, people from Perea over on the other side of the Jordan, from Idumea, down in the south, and Phoenicia gathered around him and he healed them and he touched them and he taught them and he ministered to them. These are all people who would have been excluded by the Jews of Jesus' day. Their rules would have cut them out. But the Lord wanted them to see that God loves them. God loves all sorts of people. And it's not the intent of the Lord's heart to do harm, but to do good. And all of His revelation is to that end. As we saw last week, Jesus tells us, His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He has an open compassionate heart toward people who are on the outside, the sinners, the non-practicing Jews, the Jews who never went to, to the synagogue, the irreligious, secular Jews, and the Gentiles. Matthew, in thinking back to this prediction of the of the servant of, of, of the Lord, describes him as one who would not break a bent reed The weakest expression of faith he would nurture and encourage. He wouldn't blame and condemn and further break. And a smoking flax he would not extinguish. The slightest spark of hope and spiritual life and desire he would fan into flame. He wouldn't extinguish it. That's the way God is and that's what you see in the Lord. And that's that's what our Lord wanted the world around him to see. In his day, And in ours. Our obedience to Christ ought to make us more loving and compassionate and gentle and kind and forgiving. And my question is, do we understand that that's what the Word ought to do to us? Our Word today is the New Testament and the Old Testament as it's interpreted and explained by the New Testament, but we're under the New Covenant. That's God's word to us. That's the law of Christ. And if we understand the intent of that law, it ought to make us more loving and more thoughtful. Not more narrow and uptight and rigid and stiff and formal, but more kind and more approachable. So that's the first question we need to understand, we need to ask ourselves. Do I I fully understand the intent of God's Word in my life? And the second question we need to ask is have I, knowingly or unknowingly, added to God's revelation man-made regulations and made them absolute? That's a good question. Because we're capable of doing that and making those rules just as absolute as Scripture, just as binding, and we can hinder instead of hurt. I just this past week read of a Christian organization who had as one of its um, one of its regulations that people who wanted to participate in that organization had to come in person to sign up. Now, the original intent of that law was good. It was to find out who was sincerely interested and who was only nominally interested. If you had to leave your house and go down uh, to another place and fill out a registration slip, then it showed a measure of commitment. And so the rule was good, proper. In one particular case, though, there was a woman who was bedridden. She was recovering from surgery and unable to... uh, go down to register, and so she asked that they would waive this requirement. And at first their response was, no, that's the rule. The rule stands. And so this dear lady was going to have to get a wheelchair and be taken down so she could sign in until some wiser head pointed out that that human need takes precedence over any man-made rule. Now, understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the scriptures themselves can be relativized. And I want you to, to clearly understand that. If we understand the intent of God's word, then we then we know that God's word is designed to lead us into loving relationships. It shows us how to love. And we're talking about man-made regulations. Not the word of God. Not prohibitions that are clearly spelled out in scripture. Some years back there was an ethical theory that was that almost overwhelmed the church called ethical relativism. Um, it was originated by a man named Joseph Fletcher and then was popularized by people in the church like J.E.T. Robinson in Europe and and over here in the United States, Harvey Cox. And uh, this theory stated that uh, since love was the object of the law. Love always took precedence over any law, even the Bible. And so it's conceivable in their system that if you really loved your neighbor's wife and she really loved you, then adultery would be all right. God would uh, sanction that sort of thing. Now, they wouldn't put it quite that baldly, but uh, if you followed their system all the way to its logical conclusion, that's where it would lead you. Now, that's not what I'm saying. The fatal fallacy... in that way of thinking is that we believe we know what love is, and we don't. We don't know the long-term results of our actions. And so we need to trust God. Where God has spoken clearly and unequivocally, and where a prohibition stands and we can't argue, we must do what God tells us to do. That's the most loving thing to do. But where man-made regulations and additions to the, to the Word of God appear, those are always relative and they're always superseded by human need. Let me read something to fetch it here first. Ray Stedman, a number of years ago, went to a Midwestern college and he describes the uh, meeting in this way. We were holding meetings in a large room in the women's dormitory. There was a rule in that college that the girls had to be in their rooms at 10.30 p.m. The boys could stay out until 12, but the girls had to be in bed at 10.30. Sounds unjust. We were having a great meeting. God had broken through in a remarkable way. These kids had begun for the first time to relate to each other as people and were going to one another, apologizing and being forgiven, standing, weeping together with their arms around each other praying for one another. It was a great movement of the Spirit. Promptly at 10.30, the dorm mother appeared, looking like a thunderstorm. She said, it's 10.30 in time for these girls to be in their rooms. One of us said, but God is working here, and we can't stop this meeting now. She said, I'm the dorm mother here, and the rule requires that they be in bed at 10.30, and I'm going to see that it's observed. Now, rules are fine. Bedtime rules are great. And I'm not against regulation. We, we need these things. But we need to understand that man-made regulations are always subject to human need. Always. People come first. People are God's most important product. And they always come first. You know, We almost turned away a whole generation of of these dear kids back in the 60s because they wore their hair too long. And we had a limit, collar length. And if they didn't wear their hair the way we prescribed, prescribed, then they were excluded. They couldn't come to our churches. That's true in many cases. Scripture says nothing about absolute length. There's a principle there, as you know, but it says nothing about absolute length, where we draw the line. That was a mad man-made regulation that turned people away. And we can do that about clothing. We can have a certain standard by which we accept a person, and if they don't measure up, then they're only out. Or a certain theological standard. If they're charismatic, they're only out. And they can be brothers, See? Those are all regulations that go way beyond Scripture. We need to be biblical men and women wedded to the Word. Where Scripture has spoken clearly, then we cannot quibble. We must do it. That's the most loving thing we can do. But where Scripture has not spoken, our rules are not absolute. And while rules are good and proper and need to be enacted, they are always subject to human need. People come first. And what we need to pray is that God would give all of us tender, sensitive hearts, open hearts, and deliver us from our narrowness and rigidity and self-righteousness and make us open and responsive and loving as the Lord Jesus was. Let's stand together. Father, we find great security in making rules, we like things to be in apple pie order and we want everything disciplined and explained and uh, legislated. And we simply know that life is not that way. So much of our life with you is simply walking with you and not knowing what the next step will be. We thank you that your word is revealed enough for us to walk wisely. And we ask that we would take that word seriously. And Where you've spoken, we would respond in obedience. But where you've not spoken, Lord, teach us to interpret scripture right. To be just and in in fair in our dealings with others and to see the value which you place on a human life, and to love people as you love them. Deliver us, Lord, from our rigidity and our self-righteousness and our tendency to exclude others who do not believe as we do. Make us men and women of your word who are wise in it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.